Section 2 of Jane Austen's Juvenilia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claudia Wilson. Jane Austen's Juvenilia. Love and Friendship. Part 2. Letters 10 through 13. Letter 10th. Laura. In continuation. When we were somewhat recovered from the overpowering effusions of our grief, Edward desired that we would consider what was the most prudent step to be taken in our unhappy situation, while he repaired to his imprisoned friend to lament over his misfortunes. We promised that we would, and he set forwards on his journey to town. During his absence we faithfully complied with his desire, and after the most mature deliberation, at length agreed that the best thing we could do was to leave the house, of which we every moment expected the officers of justice to take possession. We waited, therefore, with the greatest impatience for the return of Edward, in order to impart to him the result of our deliberations. But no Edward appeared. In vain did we count the tedious moments of his absence. In vain did we weep. In vain even did we sigh. No Edward returned. This was too cruel, too unexpected a blow to our gentle sensibility. We could not support it. We could only faint. At length, collecting all the resolution I was mistress of, I arose, and after packing up some necessary apparel for Sophia and myself, I dragged her to a carriage I had ordered, and we instantly set out for London. As the habitation of Augustus was within twelve miles of town, it was not long ere we arrived there and no sooner had we entered Holborn than letting down one of the front glasses I inquired of every decent-looking person that we passed if they had seen my Edward. But as we drove too rapidly to allow them to answer my repeated enquiries, I gained little, or indeed no, information concerning him. "'Where am I to drive?' said the postillion. "'To Newgate, gentle youth,' replied I, "'to see Augustus.' "'Oh! No, no!' exclaimed Sophia. I cannot go to Newgate. I shall not be able to support the sight of my Augustus in so cruel a confinement. My feelings are sufficiently shocked by the recital of his distress, but to behold it will overpower my sensibility. As I perfectly agreed with her in the justice of her sentiments, the postillion was instantly directed to return into the country. You may perhaps have been somewhat surprised, my dearest Marianne, that in the distress I then endured, destitute of any support, and unprovided with any habitation, I should never once have remembered my father and mother, or my paternal cottage in the Vale of Usk. To account for the seeming forgetfulness, I must inform you of a trifling circumstance concerning them, which I have as yet never mentioned. The death of my parents a few weeks after my departure is the circumstance I allude to. By their decease I became the lawful inheritress of their house and fortune, but, alas, the house had never been their own, and their fortune had only been an annuity in their own lives. Such is the depravity of the world. To your mother I should have returned with pleasure, should have been happy to have introduced to her my charming Sophia, and should with cheerfulness have passed the remainder of my life in their dear society in the Vale of Usk, had not one obstacle to the execution of so agreeable a scheme intervened which was the marriage and removal of your mother to a distant part of Ireland. Adieu. Laura. 
Letter Eleventh, Laura, in continuation. I have a relation in Scotland, said Sophia to me as we left London, who I am certain would not hesitate in receiving me. Shall I order the boy to drive there? said I, but instantly recollecting myself exclaimed, Alas, I fear it will be too long a journey for the horses. Unwilling, however, to act only from my own inadequate knowledge of the strength and abilities of horses, I consulted the postillion, who was entirely of my opinion concerning the affair. We therefore determined to change horses at the next town and to travel post the remainder of the journey. When we arrived at the last inn we were to stop at, which was but a few miles from the house of Sophia's relation, unwilling to intrude our society on him unexpected and unthought of, we wrote a very elegant and well-penned note to him, containing an account of our destitute and melancholy situation, and of our intention to spend some months with him in Scotland. As soon as we had dispatched this letter, we immediately prepared to follow it in person, and were stepping into the carriage for that purpose when our attention was attracted by the entrance of a coroneted coach and four into the inn-yard. A gentleman considerably advanced in years descended from it. At his first appearance my sensibility was wonderfully affected, and ere I had gazed at him a second time, an instinctive sympathy whispered to my heart that he was my grandfather. Convinced that I could not be mistaken in my conjecture, I instantly sprang from the carriage I had just entered, and following the venerable stranger into the room he had been shown to, I threw myself on my knees before him, and besought him to acknowledge me as his grandchild. He started, and having attentively examined my features, raised me from the ground, and throwing his grandfatherly arms around my neck, exclaimed, Acknowledge thee! Yes, dear resemblance of my Lorena! and Lorena's daughter, sweet image of my Claudia and my Claudia's mother, I do acknowledge thee as the daughter of the one and the granddaughter of the other. While he was thus tenderly embracing me, Sophia, astonished at my precipitate departure, entered the room in search of me. No sooner had she caught the eye of the venerable peer than he exclaimed with every mark of astonishment, Another granddaughter! Yes! Yes, I see you are the daughter of my Lorena's eldest girl. Your resemblance to the beauteous Matilda sufficiently proclaims it. Oh, replied Sophia, when I first beheld you, the instinct of nature whispered me that we were in some degree related, but whether grandfathers or grandmothers, I could not pretend to determine. He folded her in his arms, and whilst they were tenderly embracing, the door of the apartment opened and a most beautiful young man appeared. On perceiving him, Lord Sinclair started, and retreating back a few paces, with uplifted hand, said, "'Another grandchild! What an unexpected happiness is this! To discover, in the space of three minutes, as many of my descendants! This, I am certain, is Philander, the son of my Lorena's third girl, the amiable Bertha. There wants now but the presence of Gustavus to complete the union of my Lorena's grandchildren.' "'And here he is,' said a graceful youth, who that instant entered the room. "'Here is the Gustavus you desire to see. "'I am the son of Agatha, your Lorena's fourth and youngest daughter.' "'I see you are indeed,' replied Lord Sinclair. "'But tell me,' continued he, looking fearfully towards the door, "'tell me, have I any other grandchildren in the house?' "'None, my lord.' "'Then I will provide for you all without farther delay.' 
Here are four banknotes of fifty pounds each. Take them, and remember that I have done the duty of a grandfather. He instantly left the room, and immediately afterwards the house. Adieu, Laura. Letter the Twelfth, Laura, in Continuation You may imagine how greatly we were surprised by the sudden departure of Lord Sinclair. Ignoble grandsire! exclaimed Sophia. Unworthy grandfather! said I, and instantly fainted in each other's arms. How long we remained in this situation I know not, but when we recovered we found ourselves alone, without either Gustavus, Philander, or the banknotes. As we were deploring our unhappy fate, the door of the apartment opened, and MacDonald was announced. He was Sophia's cousin. The haste with which he came to our relief so soon after the receipt of our note spoke so greatly in his favor that I hesitated not to pronounce him at first sight a tender and sympathetic friend. Alas, he little deserved the name! For though he told us that he was much concerned at our misfortunes, yet by his own account it appeared that the perusal of them had neither drawn from him a single sigh, nor induced him to bestow one curse on our vindictive stars. He told Sophia that his daughter depended on her returning with him to MacDonald Hall, and that as his cousin's friend he should be happy to see me there also. To MacDonald Hall, therefore, we went, and were received with great kindness by Janetta, the daughter of MacDonald, and the mistress of the mansion. Janetta was then only fifteen. Naturally well disposed, endowed with a susceptible heart and a sympathetic disposition, she might, had these amiable qualities been properly encouraged, have been an ornament to human nature. But unfortunately her father possessed not a soul sufficiently exalted to admire so promising a disposition, and had endeavoured by every means on his power to prevent it increasing with her years. He had actually so far extinguished the natural noble sensibility of her heart as to prevail on her to accept an offer from a young man of his recommendation. They were to be married in a few months, and Graham was in the house when we arrived. We soon saw through his character. He was just such a man as one might have expected to be the choice of MacDonald. They said he was sensible, well-informed, and agreeable. We did not pretend to judge of such trifles, but as we were convinced he had no soul, that he had never read the sorrows of Werther, and that his hair bore not the least resemblance to Auburn, we were certain that Janetta could feel no affection for him or at least that she ought to feel none. The very circumstance of his being her father's choice, too, was so much in his disfavor, that had he been deserving her in every other respect, yet that of itself ought to have been a sufficient reason in the eyes of Janetta for rejecting him. These considerations we were determined to represent to her in their proper light, and doubted not of meeting with the desired success from one naturally so well disposed, whose errors in the affair had only arisen from a want of proper confidence in her own opinion, and a suitable contempt of her father's. We found her indeed all that our warmest wishes could have hoped for. We had no difficulty to convince her that it was impossible she could love Graham, or that it was her duty to disobey her father. The only thing at which she rather seemed to hesitate was our assertion that she must be attached to some other person. For some time she persevered in declaring that she knew no other young man for whom she had the smallest affection, 
but upon explaining the impossibility of such a thing, she said that she believed she did like Captain McHenry better than any one she knew besides. This confession satisfied us, and after having enumerated the good qualities of McHenry, and assured her that she was violently in love with him, we desired to know whether he had ever in any wise declared his affection to her. So far from having ever declared it, I have no reason to imagine that he has ever felt any for me, said Janetta. That he certainly adores you, replied Sophia, there can be no doubt. The attachment must be reciprocal. Did he never gaze on you with admiration? Tenderly press your hand? Drop an involuntary tear? And leave the room abruptly? Never, replied she, that I remember. He has always left the room indeed when his visit has been ended, but has never gone away particularly abruptly, or without making a bow. Indeed, my love, said I, you must be mistaken, for it is absolutely impossible that he should ever have left you but with confusion, despair, and precipitation. Consider but for a moment, Janetta, and you must be convinced how absurd it is to suppose that he could ever make a bow, or behave like any other person. Having settled this point to our satisfaction, the next we took into consideration was to determine in what manner we should inform McHenry of the favorable opinion Janetta entertained of him. We at length agreed to acquaint him with it by an anonymous letter which Sophia drew up in the following manner. O oh, happy lover of the beautiful Janetta! O oh, amiable possessor of her heart whose hand is destined to another! Why do you thus delay a confession of your attachment to the amiable object of it? Oh, consider that a few weeks will at once put an end to every flattering hope that you may now entertain, by uniting the unfortunate victim of her father's cruelty to the execrable and detested Graham. Alas, why do you thus so cruelly connive at the projected misery of her and of yourself, by delaying to communicate that scheme which had doubtless long possessed your imagination? A secret union will at once secure the felicity of both. The amiable McHenry, whose modesty as he afterwards assured us had been the only reason of his having so long concealed the violence of his affection for Janetta, on receiving this billet flew on the wings of love to MacDonald Hall, and so powerfully pleaded his attachment to her who inspired it, that after a few more private interviews, Sophia and I experienced the satisfaction of seeing them depart for Gretna Green, which they chose for the celebration of their nuptials in preference to any other place, although it was at a considerable distance from MacDonald Hall. Adieu, Laura. Letter the Thirteenth, Laura, in continuation. They had been gone nearly a couple of hours before either MacDonald or Graham had entertained any suspicion of the affair, and they might not even then have suspected it, but for the following little accident. Sophia, happening one day to open a private drawer in MacDonald's library with one of her own keys, discovered that it was the place where he kept his papers of consequence, and amongst them some bank-notes of considerable amount. This discovery she imparted to me, and having agreed together that it would be a proper treatment of so vile a wretch as MacDonald, to deprive him of money, perhaps dishonestly gained, it was determined that the next time we should either of us happen to go that way, we would take one or more of the bank-notes from the drawer. This well-meant plan we had often successfully put in execution, but alas, on the very day of Janetta's escape, 
as Sophia was majestically removing the fifth banknote from the drawer to her own purse. She was suddenly most impertinently interrupted in her employment by the entrance of MacDonald himself, in a most abrupt and precipitate manner. Sophia, who, though naturally all-winning sweetness, could, when occasions demanded it, call forth the dignity of her sex, instantly put on a most forbidding look, and, darting an angry frown on the undaunted culprit, demanded in a haughty tone of voice wherefore her retirement was thus insolently broken in on. The unblushing MacDonald, without even endeavouring to exculpate himself from the crime he was charged with, meanly endeavoured to reproach Sophia with ignobly defrauding him of his money. The dignity of Sophia was wounded. "'Wretch!' exclaimed she, hastily replacing the banknote in the drawer. "'How darest thou to accuse me of an act of which the bare idea makes me blush?' The base wretch was still unconvinced, and continued to upbraid the justly offended Sophia in such opprobious language that at length he so greatly provoked the gentle sweetness of her nature as to induce her to revenge herself on him by informing him of Janetta's elopement, and of the active part we had both taken in the affair. At this period of their quarrel I entered the library, and was, as you may imagine, equally offended as Sophia at the ill-grounded accusations of the malevolent and contemptible MacDonald. "'Base miscreant!' cried I. How canst thou thus undauntedly endeavour to sully the spotless reputation of such bright excellence? Why dost thou not suspect my innocence as soon? Be satisfied, madam, replied he, I do suspect it, and therefore must desire that you will both leave this house in less than half an hour. We shall go willingly, answered Sophia. Our hearts have long detested thee, and nothing but our friendship for thy daughter could have induced us to remain so long beneath thy roof. Your friendship for my daughter has indeed been most powerfully exerted by throwing her into the arms of an unprincipled fortune-hunter, replied he. Yes, exclaimed I, amidst every misfortune, it will afford us some consolation to reflect that by this one act of friendship did Janetta we have amply discharged every obligation that we have received from her father. It must indeed be a most grateful reflection to your exalted minds, said he. As soon as we had packed up our wardrobe and valuables, we left MacDonald Hall, and after having walked about a mile and a half, we sate down by the side of a clear, limpid stream to refresh our exhausted limbs. The place was suited to meditation. A grove of full-grown elms sheltered us from the east, a bed of full-grown nettles from the west. Before us ran the murmuring brook, and behind us ran the turnpike road. We were in a mood for contemplation, and in a disposition to enjoy so beautiful a spot. A mutual silence which had for some time reigned between us was at length broke by my exclaiming, "'What a lovely scene! Alas, why are not Edward and Augustus here to enjoy its beauties with us?' "'Ah, my beloved Laura!' cried Sophia. "'For pity's sake, forbear recalling to my remembrance the unhappy situation of my imprisoned husband. Alas, what would I not give to learn the fate of my Augustus? To know if he is still in Newgate, or if he is yet hung!' But never shall I be able so far to conquer my tender sensibility as to inquire after him. Oh, do not, I beseech you, ever let me again hear you repeat his beloved name. It affects me too deeply. I cannot bear to hear him mentioned. It wounds my feelings. 
"'Excuse me, my Sophia, for having thus unwillingly offended you,' replied I. And then, changing the conversation, desired her to admire the noble grandeur of the elms which sheltered us from the eastern zephyr. "'Alas, my Laura,' returned she, "'avoid so melancholy a subject, I entreat you. Do not again wound my sensibility by observations on those elms. They remind me of Augustus.' He was like them, tall, majestic. He possessed that noble grandeur which you admire in them. I was silent, fearful lest I might any more unwillingly distress her by fixing on any other subject of conversation which might again remind her of Augustus. "'Why do you not speak, my Laura?' said she, after a short pause. "'I cannot support this silence. You must not leave me to my own reflections.' they ever recur to Augustus. "'What a beautiful sky!' said I. "'How charmingly is the azure varied by those delicate streaks of white!' "'Oh, my Laura!' replied she, hastily withdrawing her eyes from a momentary glance at the sky. "'Do not thus distress me by calling my attention to an object which so cruelly reminds me of my Augustus's blue satin waistcoat striped in white!' In pity to your unhappy friend, avoid a subject so distressing. What could I do? The feelings of Sophia were at that time so exquisite, and the tenderness she felt for Augustus so poignant, that I had not power to start any other topic, justly fearing that it might in some unforeseen manner again awaken all her sensibility by directing her thoughts to her husband. Yet to be silent would be cruel. She had entreated me to talk. From this dilemma I was most fortunately relieved by an accident truly apropos. It was the lucky overturning of a gentleman's phaeton, on the road which ran murmuring behind us. It was a most fortunate accident, as it diverted the attention of Sophia from the melancholy reflections which she had been before indulging. We instantly quitted our seats, and ran to the rescue of those who but a few moments before had been in so elevated a situation as a fashionably high phaeton but who were now laid low and sprawling in the dust. What an ample subject for reflection on the uncertain enjoyments of this world! Would not that Phaeton and the life of Cardinal Wolsey afford a thinking mind? said I to Sophia, as we were hastening to the field of action. She had not time to answer me, for every thought was now engaged by the horrid spectacle before us. Two gentlemen most elegantly attired, but weltering in their blood was what first struck our eyes. We approached. They were Edward and Augustus. Yes, dearest Marianne, they were our husbands. Sophia shrieked and fainted on the ground. I screamed and instantly ran mad. We remained thus mutually deprived of our senses some minutes, and on regaining them were deprived of them again. For an hour and a quarter did we continue in this unfortunate situation, Sophia fainting every moment, and I running mad as often. At length a groan from the hapless Edward, who alone retained any share of life, restored us to ourselves. Had we indeed before imagined that either of them lived, we should have been more sparing of our grief. But as we had supposed when we first beheld them that they were no more, we knew that nothing could remain to be done but what we were about. No sooner did we therefore hear my Edward's groan than postponing our lamentations for the present, 
we hastily ran to the dear youth, and kneeling on each side of him implored him not to die. Laura, said he, fixing his now languid eyes on me, I fear I have been overturned. I was overjoyed to find him yet sensible. Oh, tell me, Edward, said I, tell me, I beseech you before you die, what has befallen you since that unhappy day in which Augustus was arrested, and we were separated. I will, said he, and instantly fetching a deep sigh, expired. Sophia immediately sank again into a swoon. My grief was more audible. My voice faltered. My eyes assumed a vacant stare. My face became as pale as death, and my senses were considerably impaired. "'Talk not to me of Phaetons,' said I, raving in a frantic, incoherent manner. "'Give me a violin. I'll play to him and soothe him in his melancholy hours. Beware, ye gentle nymphs, of Cupid's thunderbolts. Avoid the piercing shafts of Jupiter. Look at that grove of firs. I see a leg of mutton.' They told me Edward was not dead, but they deceived me. They took him for a cucumber. Thus I continued, wildly exclaiming on my Edward's death. For two hours did I rave thus madly, and should not then have left off, as I was not in the least fatigued, had not Sophia, who was just recovered from her swoon, entreated me to consider that night was now approaching, and that the damps began to fall. "'And whither shall we go?' said I, to shelter us from either. "'To that white cottage,' replied she, pointing to a neat building which rose up amidst the grove of elms, and which I had not before observed. I agreed, and we instantly walked to it. We knocked at the door. It was opened by an old woman. On being requested to afford us a night's lodging, she informed us that her house was but small, that she had only two bedrooms, but that, however, we should be welcome to one of them. We were satisfied, and followed the good woman into the house, where we were greatly cheered by the sight of a comfortable fire. She was a widow, and had only one daughter, who was then just seventeen, one of the best of ages. But, alas, she was very plain, and her name was Bridget. Nothing, therefore, could be expected from her. She could not be supposed to possess either exalted ideas, delicate feelings, or refined sensibilities. She was nothing more than a mere good-tempered, civil, and obliging young woman. As such we could scarcely dislike her. She was only an object of contempt. Adieu. Laura End of Section 2